Father in heaven, you are the author of salvation and the reason we are here today. Would you please make the meaning of these words clear to us, and not just the meaning, but the application of them in our lives, and press them on us in a way that is lasting. What I'm asking, Lord, is that you would cause these truths to dwell in our hearts. Amen. Trust me, the gas station attendant said to the confused motorist, if you follow these directions I gave you, they will take you right where you need to go. I've lived here a long time, and I'm telling you that the best, that's the best way to get there. And so the driver, encouraged by this, hops in the car and pulls out of the gas station, faithfully following the instructions she has been given. However, after a while, she begins to wonder and second-guess the attendant's instructions. At first, the directions seemed right, but now they seem to be taking her away from her destination. What if the attendant was confused, she asked herself. Perhaps the attendant didn't have any idea what he was talking about. Or maybe he left out one vital detail. Maybe he said left when he meant to say right. Even worse, maybe it was all a practical joke designed to get her hopelessly lost. And so, after a few minutes of this sort of second guessing and going back and forth on the issue, the driver decides to abandon the direction she has been given for something with which, to her mind at least, seems like it will achieve their desired result. Several hours later, after throwing her front end out of alignment from hitting several large potholes, after having to change a flat tire, after having to stop and fill up for gas, and after having to make several other stops for directions, after all of that, she finally arrives, tired and frustrated, at her destination, only to discover, you guessed it, that the original directions were in fact correct and would have saved her a lot of time and spared her unnecessary trouble and frustration if she had only been patient and followed the instructions through to the end. Ever find yourself in a situation like that? Maybe it was a different situation than driving a car but with a similar theme, where you decided to follow your own advice or the advice of others over previous ad advice or instruction that you had been given. Instead of following that previous advice, you decided to ignore it and instead followed your own and soon found yourself in a world of hurt that in hindsight you now realize could have been avoided. How many times, ladies, have all of us been in situations like that? In the passage before us today, Genesis 16, we are going to look at a real-life situation that is in many ways an illustration of this very thing. We have seen that God promised an heir to Abram many times over. The Lord had told Abram that he would become a great nation and that his descendants would be so great that no man could hope to count them. God had also made it quite clear that this promise would come through a son of miraculous birth, a child born through the union of Abram and his wife, Sarai. God had promised this many times over a period of at least 10 years. 
10 years is a long time to wait for a promised son to be born, especially when the promises started coming when you were already 75 years old. It would be a miracle if a woman in her late 70s gave birth to a child, especially if her husband were in his mid-80s. While Abram was certainly a man of faith who was capable of trusting God in big ways, he was also a man who was capable of fluctuation in that faith. And so Abram's life was, like most of our lives are, an up-and-down sort of existence. However, alongside Abram's variable faith, we have seen God's constant, unshakable faithfulness and commitment to bring all that he has promised and planned to pass. Sometimes in doing that, God has worked out his purposes in and through Abram and Sarai's faith and obedience. At other times, God worked his purposes out in spite of their doubts and even against their sometimes foolish actions, which would have wrecked everything if God hadn't intervened. I find great encouragement in this. I'm in God's hands. You're in God's hands. And he will not let us go. He can and will work through our faith-filled decisions as well as our doubt-filled decisions to bring about his purpose in our lives. Genesis 16, 1 through 6. But Sarai, Abram's wife, had no children. So Sarai took her servant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar, and gave her to Abram so she could bear his children. The Lord has kept me from having any children, Sarai said to Abram. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram first arrived in the land of Canaan. So Abram slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, it is all your fault. Now this servant of mine is pregnant, and she despises me, though I myself have given her the privilege of sleeping with you. The Lord will make you pay for doing this to me. Abram replied, since she is your servant, you may deal with her as you see fit. So Sarai treated her harshly, and Hagar ran away. Is it surprising to find that Sarai was beginning to have doubts about God's promise? Humanly speaking, no. It's perfectly understandable. A lot of time has passed since this aging couple has been given these amazing promises. They have been waiting on God to act. Ten years have come and gone, and still no child. What seemed unlikely and impossible ten years ago seems even more so now. We can certainly empathize with Sarai's situation. Barrenness is a difficult thing for any woman to take, no matter how strong and faithful she may be. The ability to conceive and bear children who bear God's image is missing in a barren woman. Sarai had been barren for her entire married life. It's possible that she had already resigned herself to the fact that she was never going to have children of her own. Then, out of the blue, God appears to Abram, 
and makes all these wonderful promises, including the promise of natural-born children to Abram and Sarai. All of a sudden, hopes which had long ago been abandoned are renewed. But ten years have passed, ten years of living with that renewed hope. To be sure, things have happened along the way. The promises The promise has been reaffirmed on several occasions, and that has no doubt been helpful. But at the end of the day, nothing has changed. Sarai is still childless. The anxiety must have been great. The pressure immense. Sarai cracked under the pressure. She decides that things are just not going to work out exactly as God had said. In that day... There were other ways of going about obtaining an heir. A married woman who couldn't have children was shamed by her peers. It was a common practice for a wife to give her husband a substitute wife. The children born of the servant woman were considered the children of the wife. Now, none of these realities excuse Sarai from the fact that in making the suggestion that she has made with regard to Hagar, she is clearly indicating her loss of confidence in God's ability to deliver on his promises exactly as he said he would. No amount of of explanation can clear her from that charge. She has taken matters into her own hands and has departed from the path laid out for her and her husband by God. And she has headed off in a new direction. Sarai's focus was more on herself and her plans than on the larger picture. God had promised more than a son for Abram. He had promised an entire nation and descendants that could not be numbered. In the bigger picture still, he had promised a redeemer, the seed who would one day save mankind from sin. God's plan certainly included the personal longings of Abram and Sarai for a son. Yet it was far, far bigger than that. The results of Sarai's scheme would also last far longer than she anticipated. And she is certainly not alone in taking this step of faithlessness. When she presents this suggestion to Abram, he immediately, without hesitation, agrees to the plan. Abram was acting in line with the custom of the day, but his actions showed a lack of faith that God would fulfill his promise. God had told Abram, one who will come from your own body will be your heir, Genesis 15:4. Technically, the son born through Hagar would be from Abram's own body. But the Lord meant that the heir would be born through his proper union with his own wife, Sarai. The Lord had decreed in the Garden of Eden that a man would be joined to his wife and they would become one flesh. Genesis 2.24. And Abram would have understood this from the Lord's promise. You can't be one flesh with more than one person at a time. Whatever the case, Abram wastes no time in saying yes. And in all these things, we see a strong echo of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Here is another situation where a woman is abandoning a clear path for one of her own making, and she is followed by her husband, who should be leading her, but who seems to go right along with things, not offering up a single word of objection 
or even the slightest suggestion that in light of what God had already said, perhaps they needed to stop and think about things for just a minute. Abram repeated the sin of Adam by placing himself under the spiritual authority of his wife. The Lord had just come to Abram in a vision and made a formal covenant with him. God had bolstered Abram's faith and encouraged him. But then Abram turned right around and allowed his wife to take the lead. The results were disastrous and affected all of mankind. The son born through Hagar led to the Arabic nations, which are still at war with Israel even today. If ever we have a picture of the longevity of sin, here it is. Despite the seeming rightness of this to Sarai, it was the worst thing she could have possibly done. Well, things move along pretty quickly. Abram takes Hagar as his wife, sleeps with her, and she conceives. Once Hagar knows she's pregnant, she begins to treat Sarai with contempt, and Sarai is hurt. Big shocker, right? This was just the beginning of the heartache from this awful plan. Sarai, totally ignoring that the plan was of her own choosing, goes to Abram and blames him for everything. Why didn't Sarai just take care of Hagar on her own? After all, Hagar was her servant. Well, in giving Hagar to Abram, Sarai had made a legal transaction. Before this, Hagar was her maidservant, and she could do with her what she wanted. But having already given Hagar to Abram as his wife, Sarai no longer has any authority over her. As a result, she has to come to Abram in order to get him to do something about Hagar. The problem compounds because instead of dealing with things as the spiritual head of his home, Abram abdicates his responsibility and gives permission for Sarai to do what she wants. In short, Abram abandons Hagar and the child he has fathered and any responsibility he had for her, thus leaving her completely exposed and unprotected, utterly at the mercy of Sarai, who wastes no time in heaping on the abuse and mistreatment with the result that Hagar runs away into the desert, moving in the direction of her home country, Egypt. It's an absolute soap opera. The avalanche of sin and destruction that has resulted from that initial bad, bad decision to take matters into their own hands is heartbreaking. It's also very familiar. This same sort of thing plays out in our homes or the homes of those we know and care about, where people know what a biblical response to their situation would require, but instead they choose another way that seems better or more expedient than God's way. Going our own way always leads to hurt and confusion and needless compli complications until things become almost impossible to sort out. That's what sin always does. It makes a mess of things, of us, of other people, of institutions, of entire cultures. Just look around you at today's society. We cannot possibly have the foresight, wisdom, and perspective that God has.
And because of those limitations and because of our own sin, the paths that we offer up as alternatives to God's way inevitably fall short and get blockaded by all the things we didn't know or couldn't imagine or didn't account for or couldn't foresee when we first set out on that alternative path. That's certainly what happened with Abram and Sarai. The train was running on the, wrong, on the right track all along, but they jumped tracks and got onto what they thought was a better way, but it wasn't. And it didn't take them where they thought it would, nor did it get them the result they thought it would produce. It's not a sin to have questions about what God is doing, but acting out of doubt will lead to sin. As we have seen in the life of Abram, God sometimes asks us to trust him to accomplish the impossible. The problem isn't in having occasional doubts or questions, but in acting on those doubts or questions out of fear or frustration. Sarai and Abram had the choice between acting on their doubts and acting on their faith. Acting on faith would have meant doing essentially nothing apart from maintaining normal marital relations. That's the rub, isn't it? The difficult aspect of that is the very fact of doing nothing. There are times when the most difficult action is no action at all. To wait patiently on God's perfect timing. That is precisely the course that Abram and Sarai should have followed patiently continuing to wait on God's own timetable. Instead, they focused on their doubts, persuaded themselves that God's promise couldn't be fulfilled without their help, and took matters into their own hands. Genesis 16, 7 through 15. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a desert spring along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress, she replied. Then the angel of the Lord said, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, meaning God hears. For the Lord has heard about your misery. This son of yours will be a wild one, free and untamed as a wild donkey. He will be against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live at odds with the rest of his brothers. Thereafter, Hagar referred to the Lord who had spoken to her as the God who sees me. For she said, I have seen the one who sees me. Later, that well was named Beer Lahara meaning well of the living one who sees me, and it can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old at that time. As a result of Sarai's cruelty and Abram's weakness and passivity, the reality is that they are no better off than before. And in fact, things are worse as Hagar is now pregnant with Abram's son and is wandering in the wilderness in an attempt to escape her situation. Isn't it devastating that nowhere in these verses do we see any attempt 
on Abram's part to go and find Hagar and convince her to come back? She's carrying his child, whom he claims to believe will be the child of the promise, but he is totally uncaring of her predicament. The only one who goes in search of Hagar, who shows any compassion towards her at all, is God. Despite the fact that Hagar isn't the one through whom the promised seed will eventually come, and despite the fact that her presence in the developing storyline signals the beginning of endless trouble, God knows the injustice that has been done to her and mercifully goes to visit Hagar in her distress. To be sure, Hagar isn't innocent. She has behaved contemptuously towards Sarai, but the reality is she didn't enter into these particular circumstances by her own choice. Her future was entirely in the hands of Sarai and Abram, who used her for their own purposes and then victimized her. And so God, in the form of the angel of the Lord, responds to Hagar and assures her that her situation has not escaped his notice. This is the first appearance of this phrase, the angel of the Lord, in scripture. And it refers to none other than the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the son of God himself appearing to Hagar. The angel of the Lord doesn't appear in scripture at all after the birth of Christ as a baby in Bethlehem. Hagar believed she had seen God and it did, indeed she did in the form of Jesus Christ before he was born as a man. His words to Hagar are somewhat bittersweet. In spite of their misbehavior, Abram and Sarai remained the chosen recipients of God's promise and were still going to be the vehicle for the working out of his purposes. God's first words to Hagar are to instruct her to return to her mistress and submit. Probably the last thing she wanted to hear. The reason she was in the wilderness was because of Sarai. Not only is God asking her to go back, but he is asking her to submit to this woman who has treated her so harshly. God considered the mistress-servant relationship between Sarai and Hagar to be intact. Rebelling was clearly not the answer. God goes on to tell her that she would have innumerable offspring. Many nations will come from her descendants. Hagar might have been a servant, but she would also become the mother of many, thus making Abram the father of two groups of countless descendants. Why would this be good news to Hagar? Well, it meant that her life would be spared and even protected as she mothered and raised her offspring. And in contrast to how her own life has turned out, her descendants would be their own people and wouldn't be the servants of others. Christ's words indicated prophetically that her son and his descendants after him would find themselves in frequent conflict on every side, continually at odds with those around them and with themselves. But they would face these difficulties as an independent people. Ishmael would be like the untamable desert donkey called an onager with a fiercely aggressive and independent nature. And his Arabic descendants would also exhibit these traits. Hagar commemorates this occasion of God's appearing to her 
by calling the angel of the Lord El Hra, the God who sees, since it was God who saw her in, in her distress and came to her. And her description of God was memorialized in the name of the well while she, where she was when she was discovered, Bir Lahai Ra. Hagar recognized the angel as none other than God himself. And her astonishment and having been the object of his gracious attention led her to ascribe this name to him, well of the living one who sees me. So Hagar returns. Could Hagar's return have been humbling for Abram and Sarai? She would have related the account of what happened to her in the wilderness. Abram's believing her account is indicated by the fact that he not only retained Hagar as his wife, but he also went on to name the child Ishmael, meaning God hears, a name that was given to the child by God in the desert and which Abram would not have been present to hear. He would only know about this name because Hagar told him about it. God's pursuit and rescue of Hagar rebukes the harshness and callousness of Abram and Sarai and shows them up as the undeserving recipients of God's blessing that they truly are. Their position within God's covenant plans and purposes didn't give them a license to act with injustice and cruelty. God brings Hagar back and so forces Abram and Sarai to live with the consequences of their actions for the rest of their lives. Indeed, for the rest of their descendants' lives, they will have to live and contend with this ongoing permanent reminder of what can happen when you abandon the way that God has set before you. Does this mean God's attitude to, toward Abram and Sarai has changed? No. God's faithfulness towards them is not lessened in any way by these things. God loves them too much to just get, give them a get-out-of-jail-free card every time they blow it. Abram and Sarai have made this bed, and they are going to have to lie in it. Their fundamental error is that they rested upon human reason and effort. That is the basic error of the heart of legalism. It's not surprising then that the Apostle Paul in the epistle to the Galatians draws upon this incident in chapter 4 verses 21 through 31 and speaks of Ishmael as the son that was born according to the flesh. He uses this as an illustration of how those who seek to gain acceptance before God by the things that they do will not inherit the blessings of God. Ishmael is, bo is born according to the flesh, and as the son of a slave woman will not inherit with Isaac, the son of the free woman. Paul writes that when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are adopted into the family of God. We are spiritual descendants of Abraham in the sense that we follow the pattern of his faith and are heirs to all the promises of God. He uses Isaac and Ishmael in a symbolic way to represent grace and legalism. Ishmael is born according to the flesh since he was born because Sarai and Abram tried to take God's will into their own hands. He represents legalism in Paul's epistle because legalism is man's attempt to earn righteousness apart from God's grace. 
Good works are the natural outgrowth of saving faith, but they are utterly powerless to save us from sin. We are saved by grace alone. God must condemn this turning to human reason and human effort. Human works have no value in themselves before God. God will fulfill his own word in his own way. He will not fulfill his word in our way. All human efforts and schemes are rejected. So the birth of the promised son Isaac is a divine miracle traceable to God's will and power. We often hear even Christians say that God helps those who help themselves. But that is an idea that is contrary to the word of God. He doesn't help those who help, them, helps, who help themselves. He helps those who cannot help themselves, but who turn to him for help. He won't share his glory with anyone. God will not share his glory in the birth of Isaac either, not with Abram, Sarai, or Hagar. Remember that the book of Genesis was written by Moses and was read to the Israelites as they were poised to enter the promised land. A very important lesson came from seeing the way that Abram continued to be haunted by his own mistakes. In an earlier chapter, Abram and Sarai were in the midst of a terrible famine, and as a result of that, they left the promised land and traveled into Egypt, where food could still be found. In making that journey, Abram, instead of trusting God, engaged in a deception with Pharaoh and almost lost his wife in the process. One of the consequences of that entire fiasco was that Abram, quite undeservedly, received many gifts from Pharaoh, including maidservants, one of whom was very likely Hagar. And now this same Hagar, whom he acquired as a consequence of a previous act of faithlessness, has become the source of further trouble for Abram and Sarai as they once again act faithlessly. All of this is a permanent illustration of the crazy, messed up things that can happen when God's people think and act as if they know better than him. In short, the whole Hagar and Ishmael story would have been a kind of residential object lesson. The last time God's people were preparing to enter the promised land, they, like Abram and Sarai, also decided that they would take an alternative path than the one God had for them. Forty years of wandering in the desert and thousands of funerals later, they are again at the edge of the land being reminded throughout this story to not be foolish again. The most important lesson is the peril of doing God's will in the power of the flesh. What happens is that we become dedicated to our own interpretation of our destiny. We think that we can work out our destiny in a way that will be pleasing to the Lord. My husband watches a whole lot of sports. One of the things I hear over and over again from the commentators is, this or that team are masters of their own destiny. Rubbish. You can't do that. You must be submissive and be willing by the grace of God to submit to his interpretation of your destiny. You must be willing to accept what comes to you from the Lord 
and look for him in those circumstances to accomplish his perfect will for you. Ishmael's arise out of disobedience. The harvest sown from his seed is still troubling Israel to this very day. May God help us not to lean on our own flesh in the experiences of our Christian life, but to lean on our great sovereign Lord, waiting for him to accomplish his will in his own way, in his own time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your scriptures that bring life. You are faithful, patient, merciful, and full of grace. In the same way that you were kind to Sarai and Abram despite their sin, you are kind to us in our failings. In the same way that you went after Hagar when no one else cared, you pursue us as well and are a comfort to us in our afflictions. Lord, thank you that your compassion is so much bigger than our foolishness. Thank you for your tender mercies toward us. Help us not to take for granted how very good you are to us. Amen. Thank you.